What lady is that which doth enrich the hand of yonder knight? Next Chapter Podcast presents the play on podcast series, Romeo and Juliet. She doth teach the torches to burn bright. With original songs and music in a made-for-the-soundstage podcast. From Cupid's quiver, courage, I'll Have not saints' lips and holy palmers, too. Translated into modern English verse by Hansel Jung. I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Hear Shakespeare's tragedy about two star-crossed lovers as you've never imagined it before. You kiss by the book. Adapted from the acclaimed Nat Cohen Two River Theater production. Can I move forward when all my heart is here? Go to playonpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, violent delights have violent ends. Hi, Virginia here. Before we get to the episode today, I wanted to take a minute to recommend another podcast we love. It's called Shakespeare and Company, Writers, Books, and Paris. And it's a podcast from the world-renowned English-language bookshop in Paris. The show is hosted by Shakespeare and Company's literary director, Adam Biles, and it features conversations with internationally acclaimed authors, recorded live from the bookshop in the heart of Paris. Their most recent episode is particularly relevant. It's an interview with the novelist Sandra Newman, who recently published the book Julia, a retelling of George Orwell's 1984, one of the most frequently banned books. Julia, though, is told from a woman's perspective. It's a really interesting interview. And if that's not your speed, there are so many other episodes of the podcast you might enjoy. The show has been running for over a decade and includes interviews with writers like Annie Arnaud, Colson Whitehead, Rachel Cusk, Jasmine Ward, George Saunders, and so many more. There's even a book you can read, which is a collection of the best interviews from the last decade. That book is called The Shakespeare and Company Book of Interviews. You can listen to Shakespeare and Company, Writers, Books, and Paris for free wherever you find podcasts. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment because it can't just be a few authors and educators and students. It has to be a much larger coalition. This is Mike Carrado. He's the author and illustrator of many children's books, and recently he published his first graphic novel for teens. That book is called Flamer, and it's a story about a boy named Aiden who goes to sleepboy camp. He's the only Asian kid at camp, and he's starting to realize that he's gay. Aiden deals with bullying and thoughts of suicide over the course of the story. It's a moving, important book, and it also happens to be the fourth most frequently challenged book last year. While making this series, we got to interview three of the four most challenged authors on the American Library Association's list from 2022, the fourth being Toni Morrison, and we have a whole episode devoted to Morrison coming up next month. We'll be releasing our interviews with those other writers over the next few weeks. We have one with Maya Kobabe, author of Gender Queer, George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue, and Mike Curato, whose interview we're bringing you today. Virginia talked with Mike about his writing and how it feels to have his story vaulted into national headlines as parents, politicians, and school boards campaign to remove his book from school and library shelves. Their conversation touches on suicide. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or is in crisis, you can talk to someone at the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just call 988. It's free and it's available 24 hours a day. So let's get to that interview. I'm Virginia Marshall. 
and I'm Adra Ducey. You're listening to Borrowed and Banned, a podcast about America's ideological war with its bookshelves. So your book, Flamer, came out in 2020, and I was reading another interview with you where you said, you know, at first that didn't get a lot of pushback, not a lot of challenges, and then you kind of saw this wave in 2021, 2022, which is when we saw a lot of those books um, being banned across the country. So I wondered if you could talk about what that was like to kind of like initially not have pushback and then be part of this big national story. It's interesting because I had some anxiety before the book came out about how it might be received. And I was nervous um, that some people might object to strong language and, you know, the suggestion of sexual acts. Um, But it's also very much rooted in my own experience. And so I felt and my editor agreed that I could stand by everything that happens in the book, not as anything sensational or sordid, but real things that I went through and that teenagers experience. So I was relieved after a time because when the book first came out in 2020, there was no pushback at all. You know, the harshest criticism I might have seen online would go something like, this book made me uncomfortable. But, but there'd always be a caveat, but I can understand why some teenagers could need it. And then when 21 rolled around, once I had completely let my guard down, the onslaught came and it was, it was quite something. I remember feeling sick physically ill. I have a memory of an angry parent in a video holding up my book and calling it profanity. And I was shaking. I felt like, how can this be happening today? I knew this was politically motivated. These people don't know who I am. And most people who have challenged my book, I'm sure, haven't even read it. It's very easy, especially with a graphic novel, to take a passage out of context. Um, Graphic novels are particularly vulnerable because it's a visual medium. Uh, It's easy to take a picture and make a quick TikTok and even conflate some parts of the story that aren't real. People have made Flamer sound like it's cover-to-cover pornography, which is just not true. You mentioned like the the book being challenged because of obscene content or, you know, people saying that it kind of pointing to the sexual acts as the reason that it's being banned, but there is so much in flavor that isn't that. Um, can you talk about, I guess, what messages that are getting lost when um, the book challengers are kind of hyper-focused on all of the other content? Yes. Thank you for asking that because the sensationalized, you know, sexual acts, which I just want to take a moment to say there is no actual 
intercourse in this book. There's no sexual acts between two people. I think that's important to note. Um, But meanwhile, also, I mean, that amounts to, I don't know, 2% of the book. You know, it's a few pages out of 360 pages. And the book is, above all else, I hope a life raft for people who are feeling isolated and desperate. When I was 14, I wanted to kill myself because I felt so lost. I felt like there was no place for me in this world. And I didn't see a happy future as an option for me. I had nothing to look to to give me hope. You know, as authors for young people, we are always asked to think about what books we would have wanted to have when we were younger. And this is the book for my younger self. And yes, it was important for me personally to make it, but it was even more important because I know there are people who are going through the same things that I was going through when I was their age. And I feel a duty to be able to support them in the way that I can. My writing is my activism. My writing is the way that I can support my community. Aside from that, the other really important messages in the book are not just the power of hope, but the power of resilience, the power of friendship. And I think it's powerful to see a young boy who is effeminate, who is a person of color, to show him having three dimensions and value and a soul. What were the books that you did read, whether they were required reading or otherwise, um, as a kid? So I was a bit of a reluctant reader when we transitioned out of picture books and into just reading chapter books and then middle grade novels. I I was kind of overwhelmed by so much type and not so many pictures, um, but I loved comic books so much and comics are what kept me going as a reader. And so because of that, it was really important for me to write Flamer in that same medium because I want to get through to everyone, right? I want to get to the reluctant reader. And then I had some teachers that put some pretty powerful books in my hands like Toni Morrison's Beloved. Even though I grew up learning about slavery That book is what made it real for me. Toni Morrison is, of course, also on the banned books list today, as she was in the 80s, as she was throughout her career. There's something heartbreaking to me um, more than anything about being on that list with Toni Morrison because I feel ashamed (laughs) for our country that her name could possibly be on that list. But it's also a boon in a way because she endured. She kept making incredible work and she 
did not hold anything back. And that gives me a lot of courage to keep making work. I mean, everyone I see on that list, I feel a camaraderie with, and I want to link arms with them. I wonder if there are any stories from young people that you've heard where they are connecting to your books that you want to share. I was in the Midwest doing an event this past year and a young person approached and, you know, they were very timid and said, there's a lot they would like to say to me, but they are nervous. So they can they give me a letter? And I said, of course, and they just handed me this letter and um, asked me to write something in their copy of Flamer to help them through dark days. I read the letter uh, in my hotel room and cried. I knew what the letter would say before I opened it, it felt like. There are kids out there struggling right now and they just need some support, you know, even just a few kind words can go such a long way not to mention a book that someone can see themselves in. In these really hard moments during the banning, I have to remind myself of those people You know, out of a a crowd of 5,000 screaming parents, I feel like I can still hear one scared kid whispering for help. And that's the person I'm trying to listen to through that mess. What's especially frustrating for me is these attacks on me aren't just about hurting me. It's to make an example of me we authors are to be made examples of to put fear in the hearts of not just other authors but fear in the hearts of people who would read our books people who would buy or stock our books that is what's happening it's a scare tactic and i think that's really key to identify right it's like this culture of fear and um worryingly prevents others from sharing their stories right yeah Because in shaming us, they shame the children indirectly from interacting with our work. Since this all began, I go through tough news cycles. I go through cycles of getting requests from educators who are in need of support. I've gotten to the point where I can't keep up with the requests and Even though I know I'm one person and I can't do everything, I feel like I am failing them. Um, And that's very hard. I'm not complaining about the people who are reaching out. I really feel for them. Something I hope people will bear in mind is that all of the authors and illustrators that are going through this censorship, we're not only expected to be spokespeople for the freedom to read movement, we are also expected to carry on with creating new work and um, paying our rent and mortgages and um, buying groceries and still, you know, having some life. I guess I just want to share that. Just I'm not sure if everyone realizes that sometimes it's 
it's just too much and I need to take breaks. And I mean, I've said this before, but my writing is my activism. And so while I am writing letters and making videos, it's time away from the work that I need to be doing. And I am working on a book right now that is really important to me. And it's a book I think some people will really need. And I feel very torn in in two directions right now. So that's been a struggle. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's like, we're at a point now where we need a lot of other people to step in and help fix this because it's too much right on your shoulders. I've heard this from like young activists too. They're just like, we need adult support, like that kind of message. And it's really a time, right, for more community involvement. And and also, I just wanted to say thank you for like agreeing to this interview. I know how many you get, and uh, we're really, really grateful to be able to share your story. I love BPL, and you know, I used to live in Brooklyn, and I remember the day that y'all announced um, the QR code, and I I did like a <laughs> some sort of like sports, like yeah, you know, like like yeah take that (laughs) (laughs) it's really cool yeah well thank you so much mike i should let you get back to writing your books um that's really (laughs) important (laughs) thanks so much virginia before we leave you today we wanted to let you know about a webinar that unite against book bans is putting together all about the benefit of diverse books Staff at the ALA's Office of Intellectual Freedom and First Book dig into the data to talk about the positive effects of diverse books on readers and how the conversation around book bans impacts teacher morale and student learning. That webinar is on Wednesday, November 8th at 6 p.m. Eastern, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. Borrowed and Banned is a production of Brooklyn Public Library and receives support from the Metropolitan New York Library Council's Equity in Action Grant. This episode was produced by Virginia Marshall. Our Borrowed team includes Allie Post, Fritzi Bodenheimer, Robin Lester-Kenton, and Damaris Olivo. Ashley Gill and Jennifer Profit run our social media. Lauren Rockford helps with emails. John Snowden designed our logo. The Books on Band team at BPL includes Summer Boimier, Jackson Gomes, Nick Higgins, Lee Hurwitz, Karen Keyes, and Amy Michael. Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash stand up, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. 
Thank you so much for your support. 